How can we create a healthy work culture? What is equitable listening? How does making space for learning benefit organizations? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab, and to share where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Nina Bianchi. She is a solutions principal at Medallia. Prior to joining Medallia, she served as the chief of people and culture at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. She was also a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow with the Biden Cancer Moonshot at the National Cancer Institute. Nina has coached diverse stakeholders in leading culture transformation and designing healthier work experiences to drive personalized patient experiences. Before joining the federal government, Nina co-founded and ran a social innovation consulting enterprise that fostered a vast portfolio of high-impact public-private partnerships for over a decade. Her teams have designed experiential solutions for local, national, and international clients, including city governments across the globe, philanthropic organizations, nonprofits, Fortune 500 companies, and leading institutions. You can find Nina Bianchi on Twitter at Nina Future. As a listener, you can support the show. It's so easy to do. We don't want your money, but we do want you to go into the podcast show notes, subscribe to our newsletter, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, tell a friend about the show. Now, here's my conversation with Nina Bianchi. Nina Bianchi, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I am so excited to be here and thank you for having me. We met at the Fortune Brainstorm Design Conference and you are on a really cool panel called Designing Democracy. Is that right? Redesigning Democracy. Redesigning Democracy. Important clarification there. Yeah. And you had worked for the U.S. government at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and you had a really cool title. It was called the U.S. Government Chief of People and Culture. What does that mean? What, t- what sort of work did you do there? Yes. Thanks for asking. And, you know, in government, titles mean a lot. So officially, Chief of People and Culture at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in collaboration with the IT Modernization Centers of Excellence. So this No is way. That, that was your whole there. title. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's why government has so many acronyms. We like lots of words. But so essentially, you know, I joined the federal government initially as a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow. And that was initially to support what was then Vice President Biden's cancer moonshot. And in that initial deployment, I started to connect with other agencies and learn where the needs were. And eventually, I was invited to serve at the FDA as the chief of people and cultures to support digital and people transformation. Amazing. What sort of projects did you work on during your time there? Well, when the work began, the pandemic had not started yet. So this is back in the day, pre-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> pre-pandemic. The FDA is going through massive transformation, both from a technology data and human capital standpoint. So again, in partnership with IT Modernization Centers of Excellence, we were going to look at what is the people side to the transformation and how do we ensure that people are engaged, co-creating, co-designing, and helping to shape the future of work, not being left behind as Mm. technology begins to shape the work. Mm. 
And I like this quote that I read in an article. You said, we cannot afford to think of technology people and organizations as separate things. It's all connected. So many times those things are disparate. And what led you to come up with that? Well, first, let me begin with a shout out to Dr. Amy Abernethy. And she was principal deputy commissioner at the time at the FDA. And she is, I would say, one of the most profound dot connectors. So really helping leaders in government, in industry, in academia, look at the dots and start to draw those links because it's the connections that are moving us forward into the future. And I think Amy was inspirational in this way. You know, the longer we sit in the dot or the silo, the slower we will move forward. Mm. Now, you are no longer at the U.S. government, but you still work a lot in the public sector space. Can you tell us about your current role and your organization that you work with now? Sure. I joined Medallia because I wanted to scale the effort of transformation in government. And we had the people piece really moving forward in government, but the technology and the approach wasn't quite there. So I decided to work on the same issues, but switch teams basically. So working for industry. Got it. And can you give some examples on some some exciting projects that you've worked on during your time there? Yes, absolutely. So I'm in this really unique role. I'm a solution principal and I'm with about a dozen unicorns across the company. And we are all helping drive strategy for the company as it relates to our experience. So I work with other fellow C-suite folks who are shaping healthcare, life sciences, public sector, and we are excited about transforming these worlds with experience. And I'm sitting at the intersection of healthcare, life sciences, and public sector. So I'm excited. We're just peeling back the layers to understand how can a company really work side by side with government to drive personalized medicine forward, better patient experiences, and my passion, which is the health of health organizations. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I saw that on Twitter, you went to a conference on burnout in healthcare a little while ago in, in New York City. I'm really curious to get to know your thoughts and perspective on building a healthy war culture in healthcare. I'm in it so much that I don't really, I don't pause to think, whoa, this is really messed up how healthcare is until I go into another industry. I'm like, this is a lot different from how we operate in healthcare. Well, thank you for following me on Twitter. I do like to tweet, plug that my handle is Nina Future. I was blown away at this healthcare burnout conference. It was at the National Academy of Medicine in New York City. And really looking at the message, the push, the movement that's been growing from the U.S. Surgeon General to look at workforce experience. So everyone who is working in a clinical setting, administrative folks, HR, IT, everyone who's advancing health, what is their experience of work and how can we make it better? What are some of your, as you're taking it, deep dive into this space, what are some kind of like thoughts and reflections that you have on why is the health of health organizations often so unhealthy? 
That is a great question. Well, so to go back in time a little bit, and then we'll come back to the current moment. So I was invited to be a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow on what was then Vice President Biden's cancer moonshot, not because I'm an oncologist or have a deep healthcare background. What I excel in is bringing lots of disparate communities together to find common grounds. A lot of folks are battling within their own subject matter expertise areas. And again, that's not the future. That's not how we're going to move forward. So how do we build community around shared interests and goals? And what does that collaboration look like from a cultural standpoint? So that's one of the top insights I have been taking away from all the healthcare conversations is that folks may be excellent, top surgeons, top cardiologists, you name it, but do we know how to collaborate? When you say that, I think, well, yeah, we know how to collaborate. We collaborate around patient care all the time. Is it something more than the clinical collaboration that you're talking about? Yes. There are so many layers to it. I think it's the way that different parts of an organization are connecting across. You know, I saw this really in a high resolution in the federal government. Organizations were designed in almost an assembly line thinking, right? And that's a former version of society, right? We're moving away from linear. It's all networks. And that changes the dynamic of relationships, motivations, incentives. And I don't think organizations have fully figured out what it looks like to really connect and serve one another on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah. I saw that some of the work that you did was trying to get people out of their organizational chart boxes and try to connect different parts of the organization. And I feel like that way in, in healthcare where we kind of like stay within our own box and we don't go into other boxes. Like, how did you do that work in these large organizations when the incentives are few? And it's like so hard to change large organizations and especially huge organizations like the government and the healthcare sector, which are probably two of the most slowest changing entities in our country. You know, and guess what? It's funny. I learned patience in government, but I have not been known as a patient person. So it is interesting <laughs> that I've drawn. <laughs> yeah. Putting the patient's voice, putting the physician's voice, putting the IT person's voice, whomever's voice needs to be center of a process or a decision is how we ground people moving forward. And, and this is part of my move in moving into a tech company in that I do this well, you do this well, we can listen to others and put them at the center of a process. However, to really do that at scale in a massive organization, you need technology. So I think that's the frontier we're in right now is how do we leverage the technology we have in addition to inventing new technology to ensure that the voice is always centered because maybe you can't bring a patient to a table, a boardroom. Maybe mm. you can, but how does that scale? Is that what you refer to when you say equitable listening? That is a great term. And my colleague, Tony Land, who is head of healthcare at Medallia, she has coined that term and really looking at what does equitable listening look like day to day? And what does that look like? Not only as it interfaces with the human, 
but the data, and I think the government has a lot to say about the data. So different interests are going to be coming to the table to really define that long-term. Now, you know, so many of us who work in healthcare, you know, physicians, nurses, administrators, we're experienced so much burnout and we're like unhappy people. You know, many physicians won't recommend their career to their children or other people. And so I think a lot about, you know, the future of the healthcare workplace, because, you know, if we have burned out doctors are going to give burnt out care. And I was kind of curious to know, projecting, you know, let's do like a design exercise on like the future of the healthcare workforce. What should it be like, you know, if we weren't so constrained, how might it look different from its like current state? That is a great question. I'm putting you on the spot here because I don't know the answers. Well, I think, I think a couple things. So I think we will all be defining that together and it will work better for all of us if we work on it together in collaboration. So really thinking about how we hold space to be together, to work together and prototype, right? So in designing a healthier work culture, where do you begin? You're not going to do 800 things simultaneously. You're going to pick one or two. You're going to try it. You're going to learn from it. You're going to prototype, rapidly iterate, and scale it when it seems to be working. But the the really important part of that is the collaboration of us working together and creating space on a regular basis. But yeah, that is a really big question. I think we should have a retreat about that. Yeah. I propose we uh, go somewhere beautiful and talk about it. When I think about creating space, it seems so simple, but it doesn't really happen, right? You know, very few organizations set aside time for the employees and the managers to have a safe space to prototype the future. And how do you get organizations to do that? And what are some stories can you tell of like how that process was so important to an organization? Well, I'll go a little high level and then bring it down into some stories. But the holding space, I just had a conversation with a colleague recently who is holding space in her workplace around the recent announcement with Roe versus Wade, all of that that's been happening Mm. and just holding space, not forcing a solution in a conversation immediately. A lot of these are wicked, complex, gnarly problems that we aren't going to solve in one silver bullet. So holding space. And I think the first step is having people who are there to hold the space. So I'm often one of those. And then the holding the space becomes a habit in which then seeds of ideas can grow. And then the data, I mean, I have to be honest, I think early in my career, I didn't realize how important the data was. And once moving into large enterprises, the government, being able to move a movement forward by keeping people at the center, but also having that thread of data that's pulling through because there's a lot of analytical folks out there that hear the story and feel moved, but it isn't until it becomes quantifiable, will an action be taken or resource be committed? Yeah. I'm curious to know about your own personal like design journey, because you 
went to school as a designer, right? And did you think that you were going to be getting into organizational design when you were in college? Well, I want to be honest. I, I don't often identify as the designer, right? And I'm just sort of coming out of the closet, so to speak, about it because <laughs> I hid it for years and all of the design. Why? <laughs> you know, and this is very personal and we chatted about this previously, but, you know, growing up, I really wanted to be a physician. I wanted to be a doctor. I have a healing sensibility and I have a very complex system sensibility. So the fact that I ended up in design school, I think I was like grumpy from day one about it uh-huh. and read tons of science books and was just like still hyper-focused on systems. Mm. Um, so if 40-year-old Nina would have shown a mirror onto 17-year-old Nina, which is when I started college, I think she would have been like super curious about this current state and not surprised. Mm. I think design sometimes, and this is not the world in which you practice either, but design often is considered last surface. Yeah. I mean, I'll be curious, how did you get into design? Because it was never surface for me. And I think a lot of the culture still is surface. Yeah. You know, when we look at the pedagogy of medical education, so much of it is like based on like memorization and there is a little space like you're talking about for applying your creativity and imagination in healthcare. You know, we had this opportunity to teach design thinking to medical students, and that was a way, sort of a framework to introduce creativity and imagination as skill sets for physicians. So that's how I got into design and start learning about how you apply design to healthcare and learning about the opportunities for reimagining the problems in healthcare through design. So I've contextualized my understanding of design strictly in in the healthcare space. And you're a very creative person looking at your studio there. It's very colorful and curious to know about what role creativity plays in your current work and in your past work. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I'll have to interview you one day. Yeah. On a podcast. On, oh, wait, yeah. On your new podcast, yeah, it's we have- dropping, right? It's called Solving for X. And can you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah. So that is a very creative endeavor that I have. I'm very lucky to be able to work with a number of federal leaders on that podcast. and this idea of what is X and X kind of means experience, but what does the experience of work look like moving forward when we start connecting the dots between how people in an organization are working, how that impacts either the customer or patient or whomever's on the other side receiving. And what does that mean for the tools and technology we use on a regular basis? Mm. So that's a creative effort. I have to be honest in that, again, working with amazing federal leaders from the Office of Personnel and Management, Department of Defense, it's creative that we are coming together across our agencies and industry to talk about things that don't have an answer. And I think that that's part of creativity in my day-to-day. I mean, while at the time I may have been grumpy 
going to design school when I really wanted to go to medical school, I'm very happy. And I feel very grateful now that I have this creativity wired in me and it was wired in me from the start, but I thrive in the unknown. I love open-ended questions. I love creating structure when there is none. Like I'm a very opposite type of person from most people in leadership roles. And I think I challenge folks to think differently in a way that's extremely productive and inclusive. Thriving in the unknown is something that many of us physicians are scared of. Like that is not our comfort zone, but I think, can that be taught? Can you learn that skill of thriving in the unknown? I had thought about setting up a training about that, actually. Really? I've thought okay. about I, it. I, I want to enter, please. <laughs> I have thought about it. I think there are ways to try on and practice new mindsets, but going back to, we have to create space for it. It's a practice. Mm. You may want to run a marathon, but you've never done it before. Do you go out and run the marathon the day you think of it? Maybe, but is that potentially harmful? Yes. Will you achieve it? Likely no. The same thing of learning a new way of thinking. You need to practice it. Neuroscience is a fun hobby of mine. I will not be spouting any (laughs) data (laughs) points from that, but I read a lot of papers on how the brain works too. And Mm. I mean, the practice of a new way of thinking is a discipline that you hold space for. Yeah. And so I think thriving in the unknown is a way of thinking. Yeah. It's not magic. And I think so many of us say, oh, I was born this way where I thrive in the unknown or I was born that that gives me anxiety. But you can learn how to do that, even though you may not be hardwired for it. Right. And I want to touch back on creating space because I think it's so important, but how do you create space for these things? Because often our job descriptions don't allow for that. You know, there is not a create the space on a Microsoft Outlook calendar invite. Like how do you practically create space? Is it, there's something that I read that you did around like these pop-up learning labs or were those one ways of how you created space? Yeah. I'm so flattered that you read these articles. Yeah, I have, They're so good. Yeah. Thank you. I was going to bring us back to the real world examples of things we were leading in agencies and organizations in the present where I think learning is a wonderful place to start when you start to hold space. Because I think if you think about it, holding space could mean that you might have to push something away where maybe something that no longer serves you may have to be set to the side or sunsetted. We say we have said in government and that's hard. Humans generally don't love change. Again, I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I thrive in it, but figuring out how to create space for folks to enjoy themselves in something that's rewarding, fulfilling, that's on a journey towards a new way of working or a healthier culture and the learning. So we would do these pop-up learning labs. And I mean, I've literally been doing these probably my whole career. So over 20 years, different forms, right? Uh So back in the day, I worked with MIT a lot, foundations. We would do pop-up learning labs. They were digital. We teach people how to code, hack things. So that's sort of the history, right? Learning 
how to hold space and craft it in such a way. And then bringing that into government. I, I held hundreds of labs literally when I was in government and sometimes they would be an hour. Sometimes they'd be three hours. Sometimes they'd be with Amazon or Medallia or I would generate the curriculum, but again, it was creating a space, creating something fun and new for folks to learn and get hands-on with. Yeah. I'm just thinking of like, how can we put some of these like pop-up learning labs in healthcare, you know, organizations, you know, around designing healthier workspaces or work culture, I think is an important one where often it's top down from how you prevent burnout or how you be healthier, but you know, the people actually in it, the day-to-day workers, you know, I think it'd be great to get their voice in how they can design a, a healthier workplace. And do you have thoughts on like how, what sort of like pop-up learning lab themes that you would advise for healthcare organizations? Well, so I'll share an example. When I was at the National Cancer Institute with a team from the Office of Workforce Planning and Development, we hosted the first human-centered design lab ever. Cool. And it was, a, I think it was three hours. It was a pop-up, right? We did it in a conference room and we had senior leaders from all the divisions across the agency come. And we had a hypothetical, right? It was, it was not like, super science fiction, like this would never happen, but it was a hypothetical question that didn't threaten anyone's current state of being. So we were reimagining how a certain part of the building could be redesigned physically to foster more collaboration. Mm. And it was a really exciting exercise. Folks got into debates, folks, you know, came up with lots of ideas. And at the end, I remember someone who leads the clinical trials at the organization saying like, well, why don't we actually do this? So it was this moment of like, we held space hypothetically, and this is inspiring a conversation that might extend into reality. So how do we start to explore that and potentially implement? Yeah. I think collaboration is a huge concept communication. Mm-hmm. I think we could open up you know, what is a chief wellness officer's role and start to look at what they're working on and start organizing labs around concepts there. And that was a theme for sure at this recent healthcare burnout conference. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's such an important issue because how can these organizations deliver care to patients and communities when the healthcare workforce is so burnt out when there's so much unhappiness, you know, how can you be caring and compassionate? I mean, I don't think it's possible. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. So (laughs) (laughs) do it. Yes. (laughs) Where do you go? So when you go into work and if you're feeling like the tank is low, like where do you reach? Like, where does the energy come from? Good question the tank is low a lot and there's like major lows throughout my career where it's like, I was experiencing so much burnout. And one way that helped is I took a mini sabbatical and went to public policy school. (laughs) That was early on in my career. So I had to take a little bit of a break from clinical practice. I still did work during it, but not as much. 
And, you know, one way for me is part of me feeling kind of frustrated and burnout is I feel helpless. I can't do anything about it. And engaging in design, like even like speculative design activities, like these pop-up learning labs is very encouraging to me because it's like being able to apply my imagination to the problems. Because a lot of times the problems that we face seem so monumental and that you feel like so helpless to do anything about it. But giving space to go, hey, well, maybe we can, maybe we can collaborate has been personally for me, very, very helpful. It refuels my tank. Thank you for sharing that story. And that makes me feel great about where I've been and where we can all go together because sometimes you forget something that's so simple. And this can be a simple and elegant kind of design experience can be profoundly impactful for someone. And, you know, what's coming up for me are stories from very early in my career where, again, I wasn't working in health cultures, but I was working in Detroit, my hometown, where there's a lot of unhealthiness everywhere. And not only from a human standpoint, but the environment, the state of the economy, like, I mean, the, the city completely kind of imploded. Yeah. And we would bring communities together to imagine futures and bring hope into a discussion that was practical as well. I mean, we were getting millions of dollars from the federal government to bring broadband into communities. So digital justice, digital divide work and engaging a community. And sometimes you'd have a city council member there and you'd have a resident and like, imagine how you want to connect with your neighbors Mm. and just get folks to draw and talk in a holding space. And that was a huge step forward. Just that those moments, I'm sorry, I get a little emotional about it, but I learned a lot in Detroit. Yeah. Like, why can't we do that in healthcare? You know, have these spaces where we can bring hope or how do we envision hope? Because, you know, we are very cynical, you know, and often, especially during the pandemic and in the season where droves of healthcare professionals are quitting their jobs. Like how do we bring in hope? I remember at one point when I was at the national cancer Institute, we were proposing a workshop with physicians. So NCI has a network of cancer centers and the, the high level problem we were working on was clinical trial matching automation. And how do we personalize the experience of how a patient might be matched to a late stage clinical trial the patient being a cancer patient. And, you know, I was like, we could have a design thinking activity and we can have colors. And, and I remember one of the physicians, essentially a medical officer was like, Oh no, no, no. We don't use colors in medicine. Literally. And then me, I'm a little sassy, right? I'm like, well, (laughs) I'm like, well, they can be white white post-it notes, or we can find grid post-it notes, like the blue and white ones. Cause I was like, what is it? Oh no, no, no. We don't do color. Oh my like, gosh. Yeah. These memories are coming up now. I mean, I have like so much in my brain, right? Like, thank you for asking these questions. Yeah. There's so many questions. Okay. Wait, <laughs> I want to open up another tab. So this was crazy. So you writing a science fiction novel in your spare time? So 
again, on the topic of creating space and I've always wanted to write. I write for work often, right? But it requires you to really have a discipline. And this storyline, the sci-fi storyline has been tumbling around for years now. And at the beginning of this year, I decided, I was like, I need to write this book. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I even started, I was like, would I have to get a sabbatical? What would I have to do to be able to write this book? I was like, I can't just leave my life, right? So I just carve out like two or three hours on the weekend and just sit down and I listen. I'm an old techno person, like from Detroit days. So I listen to like very good electronic music. I go into the zone. I write a couple pages and I've written like almost 120 pages so far. Whoa, amazing. And it's, can you tell us a little bit about it? It's like a sci-fi thriller or. And, And this is the first time I've ever talking publicly about this. I think I tweeted once or twice about it. And in fact, I've noticed other health leaders are starting to feel like they need to write sci-fi as well. Andre yeah. Blackman. I don't know if you know oh, him, but yeah, yeah. amazing. But he tweeted, he had gone to Aspen, done an Aspen Institute event and started writing his sci-fi book on the flight back. I, I was oh. like, Andre, I've been writing mine too. So I think this is something where I feel like we need this outlet yeah. to talk about the possibilities. So the way that the idea is coming together, taking inspiration, I read something from Zadie Smith once of how she architects a book and it's either sort of in the moment or a high level plan. And I definitely have a high level plan and we're looking at three or four books. So I don't want to spoil, I don't want to <laughs> spoil it. So there's a longer story architecture, but the core is that our current reality no longer works for us. I mean, it doesn't work. And therefore the government invests in building a multiverse. So not metaverse, multiverse that is fueled by government workers. And the story kind of rides on an AI psychologist who is helping to manage the health of the data sets and the way that the workers are training the algorithms over time. Because sort of an asterisk here. I think there's amazing conversations happening around AI ethics. Mm -hmm. It absolutely needs to happen. I've spent a lot of time in government in those conversations too, but it's not going to be a set of fixed policy, right? It's not going to be a really firm container. Like this is going to be living and breathing. So that's, I'm sort of thinking through things through this character who's this AI psychologist. That's so cool. Yeah. That's the gem in the center. There's other other bits but that's (laughs) that's great because like science fiction is a act of like speculative design and starting well with this premise like everything is broken yeah everything's broken in healthcare and how can we redesign the future of it is is science fiction for sure yeah i think about several hundred years from now and what my legacy on this earth you know might be and i think about I am a futurist really, right? And there's no way I will ever be able to make all the things I imagine. And I want to share it. So I think the writing is probably the most logical way to do it. (laughs) It can definitely give us hope, right? Yeah. One question I like to ask guests, how might we design a healthier life? And there's asterisk there because, you know, healthy like how do you define that and so it's uh, sometimes an unfair question but you could take it any way that you want if you feel comfortable answering that 
I look forward to the book that you will write after you pull all of your guests' responses together. It'll be really interesting to see what everyone says. Oh, I thank think- you for giving me that, that idea. That's a great yeah. idea. You can always count on me for those kind of ideas. Yeah. Um, I think designing our life is the way I would advise an organization to design their culture as well. And that you want to have the big vision and the vision may evolve over time, but the reality is it's small steps every day. Uh, I've been working on this arc of transformation as a visual model because also trying to find ways for folks to kind of hold on to something in their minds without having to read a 200 page book or listen to 800 self-help podcasts. But you begin at the center with your values and you start to integrate behaviors and activities that hold true to those values. And then you grow those over time, like layers, almost like a rainbow Mm. is the way the visual in my mind is. And it's the journey, right? That sounds cliche, but it's not like we're going to find this big gold treasure at the end of the rainbow. It's like each layer is part of our lives. I think that's probably the hardest part is like being present in the moment and knowing the fact that I write one page in my sci-fi novel every Saturday morning is huge. That's part of my life, right? At the end of my life, I will have the book. I had to start somewhere though. And you're making space for that. And you're making space for that, for for that process. And I love this concept of small steps, micro steps, because often we don't engage in something that we think is transformative or helpful or healthy because it just seems so daunting, but taking like bite-sized chunks out of it is super practical. I would bring that back around to, if you were suddenly given the opportunity to transform a hospital system that had 20 different clinical, a footprint of 20 different hospitals, the same would apply. What's the vision? We begin small. What are our values and what are small behaviors that we can begin to make that impact over time? It is not a, you know, here's all the steps one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's a design process. And again, I think the most recent learning and my interest in joining a tech company is how do we build data along the way? How Mm. are we measuring along the way? And that's more for organization, less for individual, but you could become more individualized with the data too. Yeah. I love all this. I've, I have more questions, but uh, you probably have to get on your day, but I'm super grateful for you making time for us, Nina. This was such a treat. I am thrilled that you are you and doing this work. I'm thankful and glad that Rich Schwartz connected us on the interwebs too. Yeah, Rich. <laughs> Shout out to Rich. I love him. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nina Bianchi. You can find her on Twitter at Nina Future and reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. A theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.